Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 168. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, filling in for my normal co-host, John White, at VJourneyman. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across the disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Let's start this week with a question as we begin a new series of interviews. Have you ever thought you wanted something and then changed your mind once you got it? Maybe found out it wasn't for you after all. That's exactly what happened to our guest this week. Mike Wood is a technical program manager for the commercial software engineering group inside Microsoft. And though Mike had early exposure to programming, he chose to pursue law enforcement because that's something he wanted to do ever since he was very young. But once he got there, as a 20-something, he found that it wasn't for him. It didn't work out. It was more challenging in ways that he didn't realize. We'll follow Mike as he transitioned into consulting, software development consulting, from a small company to a larger company. And then we'll hear the story of what happened once the company he really enjoyed working at got acquired and how that created some interesting clashes in culture. I hope you're ready, ladies and gentlemen. Buckle up because it's a two-parter. Here we go with part one of our interview with Mike Wood. Mike Wood, thanks for joining us on the Nerd Journey Podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome. Can you tell us, you know, and the listeners what your day job is, what you do there? So I currently work for Microsoft. I'm a technical program manager uh, with a group called Commercial Software Engineering. And that's an enablement organization inside of Microsoft. So we work with some of Microsoft's really large customers. And we go in and help them. We're actually coding with them to solve some of the problems that they're having. And so we're down there in the trenches, hands on the keyboards with them. And we take those learnings back to the product teams uh, and so, because we figure if we can solve a problem for some of Microsoft's largest customers, right, on the platform, on the Azure platform, whether that's uh, cloud or on edge devices, then we know they've got it solved for, you know, pretty much everybody. Cool. Or if you have problems and need to work around things, yep. then you take those learnings back too, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. All that goes back to the product teams and we can get them engaged to resolve issues and reprioritize uh, certain scenarios, et cetera. Oh, that's really cool. I think that's a real strength of uh, of an organization that has that type of uh, team that you know goes out and experiences the customer's pain and and brings that back, not just uh, hearing stories kind of secondhand. How did you originally get into technology as a career? Well, as a career, that's a good or question. Technology in general. Uh, okay, so starting from just general technology, I was about eleven or. 12 when we got a first computer it was a commodore 64 right and my 
father, when he went to buy it, my brother, who is four years older than I am, uh, and I were both like, we want a computer, we want a computer. And my father had several brothers that were technical in nature. Uh, and when he asked them, you know, what should I do? They said, buy them a Commodore and don't buy them any games. So we received the Commodore, which back then came with a book that taught you basic, right? Basic programming language. And so we started playing around with that. We had no, there was no disk drive. At some point, we finally got the cassette drive so we could save the things that we typed in there. Otherwise, you Ooh. turned it on and you just had to, you know, let it sit. Oh, um, man. Cassette drive. Oh, yeah. And we used to get a magazine. I don't remember the name of the magazine, but it would have basic programs in it that you would type in and then troubleshoot and, and that kind of thing. And that got me started in computers. So I took some programming classes in high school, and that's really what got me started in technology, but that's not the career that I got started in. Sure. Do you, do you remember the first time you heard uh, go to considered harmful? <laughs> I think that was uh, my high school teacher. <laughs> He's like, don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So how about that? Uh, how about the career then? So the career started out when I was growing up, I always wanted to be in law enforcement, specifically like federal investigations, FBI, U.S. Marshals, Secret Service, that kind of thing. And I actually went to college with the intent to get a degree, do three or four years work experience, and then apply to the FBI. Because back then it was, unless you could speak you know, five or six different languages, you had to have a little bit of some sort of related experience in order to get involved, right? And so I thought, well, you know what? I'll go, I'll get a degree. I will do some time uh, as a, an officer somewhere and get some work experience and then go into the FBI. And I got a job as, uh, my, so my degree is actually in police administration uh, from Eastern Kentucky University and has nothing to do with technology. Uh, I did take some programming classes while I was there, but that was just because I was like, oh, Pascal, I, I did that in high school. I could probably make an easy class out of this. And then I got a job actually as a police officer for a short time and realized that wasn't really for me. And so at that point, I was like, well, now what am I going to do? I ended up, I remember calling my dad and saying, yeah, this isn't, this isn't working out. And dad was like, that's great. You know, do you need any money? Can we, you know, how, how can we help you? Uh, please don't move back home right now. Uh, <laughs> but Or you know, ever. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I have a lot of siblings, and I think I'm the last one, right? Um, and so I think Dad was very happy that we were all out of the house at that point. Um, but it was fine because I, I wanted to stay. The, the county that I grew up in was a very small county in, in Kentucky, and there wasn't – I mean, there was work there for sure, right, uh, the paper company being the largest employer in the county. But not for what I kind of wanted to do, right? So I was looking around, what what do I want to do? And that was actually a bigger question. So I, I ended up just stumbling across things like, well, I know how to write some code, right? And I know how to create some websites, very simple HTML. Uh, back then, everything, there was no CSS, right? And very few people did CSS. It was just all inline stuff, you know, back when the table element wasn't an evil thing. It just so happened that I happened across a job that was being offered by Eastern Kentucky University where I went to school in their housing department. And they said they needed somebody that knew the Alpha 4 database, which is a, a text-based database long time ago. Uh, and I had done a little bit of that in high school. 
And so I was like, all right, I can apply for this. And then started working there. And then it ended up doing almost zero with Alpha 4, uh, mostly mainframe, just to get stuff. And I wasn't programming against the mainframe or anything like that. It was just using it, right, to make housing assignments and that kind of stuff. But then I got sucked into uh, Microsoft Access in order to, uh, the director there in the housing department decided, you know what, I think we can automate some of the processes to do matching of roommates and that kind of stuff. Uh, and so that kind of turned into a side project at work. And that led me into VBA and you know a lot of stuff inside of Access. And then I realized, you know, I, I probably want to do you know, a little bit more than this. And it was always going to be just kind of that level of that level of technology in that role. And so that's when I started looking at basically roles as a consultant or you know, programming for somebody. Here's a question, Mike. You mentioned that you found that the law enforcement was not the right fit. Can you elaborate just a little bit on how you knew it wasn't a fit, but how maybe you carried some of the skills you learned forward into what you did with the consulting? So thinking about it wasn't a good fit. I That came more as a surprise to me. And I guess the best way to put it is I was 21, right? Just a kid, right, basically. And at one point I realized I'm making decisions that have a significant impact on someone's life. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for the folks that are in law enforcement. You get a different perspective if you've been there, done some part of the job, right, or been around it, or even been in the orbit of someone that's been in law enforcement, it's, it's not an easy job. You hardly ever, when you're an officer, you are hardly ever dealing with someone when it's their good day, right? It's whether they're, they have done something they shouldn't have or if something bad has happened to them, that's when you're interacting with this person, right? So you are almost never working with somebody when it's their good day. And that's hard because that starts to flavor how you see people in general. And some law enforcement folks have been able to internalize that and they can shut it off and you know it's not a big deal and some can't. And I could see down the line um, me having struggles with that, right? And so in the end, it's like I, I don't feel like I can make the right decisions as a 21-year-old about how it might affect this person's life and their family, et cetera, right? Even if they're making bad decisions, right? I, I'm still having an impact on what can happen to them down the line. And so from that, I just decided, you know what? I need to, I need to take a step back and this maybe isn't for me. And even then, I think I still thought down the line, maybe I'll, I'll apply for the FBI because that's investigations. That's slightly different than this day-to-day -day thing. But in the end, once I got into consulting, I didn't go back and, or, or look at any of that. So interesting. It's something that I've often thought that there's jobs out there where you interact with people and it's like just not the, I think the way you put it was like you see people sometimes on their worst day and mm -hmm. sometimes you just see like the worst part of humanity over and over in a job and that must twist how you see people in general. It's, I think as a general law enforcement, I never thought about that but you know i think i heard i thought about it about if you're like in the incarceration incarceral part you know if you're uh 
working in a jail, a county jail, like a prison guard, like it just must affect how you see people in general to see people in that situation, that like negative part of humanity over and over and over again um, has to kind of twist how you see people in general. I don't know. It can affect how you trust people or how you build trust or even if you have ability to trust, right? If you're constantly seeing the worst in people, you've got to have that perspective to be able to stand back and say, that's not everybody all the time. And, right. you know, this is after 20 plus years of, <laughs> of life experience and perspective mm -hmm. that I can take that step back and, and have that thought, right? But at 21, it's it's hard to have that that viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also interesting from the perspective of you don't really know what the job entails until you go and do it. We've mm -hmm. talked to other people who, you know, they kind of did a little bit of the job maybe beforehand, and then they went and did the job, and it was either very much the same or very different, or there were some aspects of it that really surprised them. So I think that's one of those lessons for people. You, you can't possibly know everything about what the job will ask of you until you're in it. And, you know, kudos to you at a young age deciding, you know, this probably isn't the best decision. I'm going to look for something else. Yeah, that that is definitely the case where you don't – I was just having a conversation with somebody here not too long ago about you can go through the interviews, you can read the job description, all of that. And there's some aspect, even if you get one-on-one -on -one time with people that are in the same role – that you can get an idea of what it's like, but almost, I can't think of a single job description I have read that once I got into it was different in some manner, right? Some more than others, but, uh, and, it, and it's always changing, right? So your, your jobs are always changing and adjusting to all sorts of different impacts that come in from, uh, from acquisitions to just changes in how things are done to changing in leadership. So yeah, any job that you start in expect it to change the industry might change yes like if yep. it's like you're in some kind of vertical industry maybe there's a global pandemic and then everything <laughs> about everything changes yes absolutely you know i don't i don't yeah. know what you're talking about john <laughs> yeah i know that's kind of an out there out there Very yeah you're really reaching tonight <laughs> yeah <laughs> nick you you also asked like what skills i took forward from being in law enforcement in the consulting or into my later career. And some of that was, I don't want to say negotiation training, because I didn't necessarily get like heavy negotiation training in air quotes, right? But dealing with people, reading people, reading uh, situations, being confident enough to confront and have hard conversations when it's necessary, because I'm not, by nature, I'm not generally uh, an extrovert or someone that, that pushes on things. But in that job, you had to learn that, you know, you're going to have to step forward and, and say something. I mean, it's just the way it works. Uh, and that's come into play in my career as well, where it's like, you know, this, there's obviously something going on that needs to be corrected, but nobody really wants to touch it. And it's like, all right, well, then I guess I'll just, I'll be one of the people that step up and point out the problem, right? Um, or what I perceive to be a problem, because sometimes, you know, it's like, no, that's not a problem at all. <laughs> well, I think that that's an important skill too, just to, to raise the question. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, um, and ask, you know, what might be difficult questions. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really cool. You know, I, I think that a lot of people have a fear of looking stupid in a group setting, right? It's like, ah, everybody knew this except me. 
Right. If I have this question, it must be because I'm the only one who has this question. And that is often not the case. Oh yeah, very much so. It's, I think I, sometimes I think about it from the standpoint of when you're going to try to find uh, the solution to a problem, right? So you're stuck on uh, some bit of code or whatever, and you go and you search on uh, Google or Bing or whatever, and you're like, here's the problem. And you get zero results. And you're like, all right. So this is either because no one has ever, ever had this problem, which is probably not true, or it's so simple that no one else has actually, you know, needed to look for it because it just, they, oh, okay, this is how you solve it, right? <laughs> or more specifically, I've just probably completely failed at my, you know, my Google foo, and it's not really how you search for the problem. But to your point, right, is, is it a dumb question or is there a problem there that you, know, you should be worried about asking because then somebody's perception of you may be different? That's something I think people need to overcome or, or think about. Most of the time, there's someone else has already had the problem, may have even solved it, or you know, if they have a problem and they're just too scared to ask the question, to your point, someone else in the room has the same question or somebody else in the group or whatnot probably has the same question and maybe they're scared to bring it up as well. You might as well just ask, right? I mean, and get it out there. I, I have a strong theory that you can make a, a basis of a career just being the one in the room who asks the questions you know, works through things and then documents it. Like that could be like your entire value add to an organization. <laughs> and that's yep. almost the basis of an entire career to, to be the fearless one. <laughs> but some of that is what um, you know, program managers do, right? And, and uh, technical program manager, TPMs at Microsoft, we ask a lot of questions. A lot of our role is very similar to a product owner, but at the same time, it's also asking a lot of the questions when we get in, with a customer. And this is when I was in consulting, same thing, right? You ask question after question after question, you just, why? And then they give you an answer, why, right? Over the five whys, right? You just keep asking to keep getting deeper. And so you're, to your point, yeah, there's, there's absolutely people that make their entire career based on just asking questions and being able to um, pull in all that information, summarize it, and then convey it to the other people who can actually solve the problems. Yeah, being that funnel. I like it. Yep. So what, like, I I understand now that you kind of got into that software consulting, but that had to be pretty early. We, you're talking about, like, uh, transitioning to access databases, which I think if you are younger than a certain age, you probably have <laughs> never even heard of that product. <laughs> so this was uh, around 97, so 1997. So I've been in the software industry for 23, 24 years, something like that. Yeah, I transitioned right around 97. Got it. Hey, Office 97 was out for a long time, so <laughs> it's a solid <laughs> solid package of products. I I remember using them. Yeah. It's, it's that transition from uh, Access 97 to Access 2000, though. That was, the, that was a real killer. Well, luckily I got in one of the positions I got right after working for Eastern in the housing um, was a small firm in Lexington, Kentucky. And they, they were mostly a networking and infrastructure group. Um, they only, they had a very small programming group. There was my manager and me for a while. Right. And then we had a couple other people. And, and, uh, but for the most part, it was my, uh, the manager and me. 
they were very successful in getting into companies, um, you know, outfitting, network, configuring their systems, buying people's laptops, all of that. And their salespeople were really good, um, almost too good when you only had two people working on code, right? So there were a lot, a lot, a lot of projects. But as part of that is when I got introduced to BB6 and working with SQL Server. Uh, back then it had just, I think, been called SQL Server because uh, I think prior, the version prior to it was Sybase, right? It was still owned by Sybase. And so that was my you know, first leap out of Microsoft Access was into VB6. And, um, and that's Visual Basic for anybody who might not know that's listening. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that is true. Later on, I got into .NET, and there was VB.NET, and now I don't think anybody really does VB.NET anymore at all. It's all C-sharp if they're doing .NET. Back then, that was all new to me. Like I said, I had taken a few courses in high school and a few courses in college, uh, but no theory, right? The, back then, the, the concept of classes to me was a new thing. Interfaces were a new thing. Um, and I actually learned most of that by reading uh, code that we had kind of inherited at this firm I was at uh, that had been written by kids that were in college, right? So you got guys that had been getting a lot of theory and um, understood data structures and those kinds of things. And I hadn't had any direct education on that, right? So I was just looking through code and saying, okay, what I see it work. Now I have to understand why it works that way. And a lot of decomposition went on. Oh, yeah. That's like turning on the macro recorder in Microsoft Excel and doing a bunch of stuff and then you go look at the code and you're like, oh, okay, so that's what that command does when, and it was actually me clicking this cell or typing this thing. That's pretty cool. Did they comment their code well? I have to ask that question. I mean, uh, To be honest, I don't remember. I remember my manager and I spending a lot of time looking at something at various ports of the code and like, how does this work? Or like, Or why does this work? Even if they commented it well, it's potentially like a lot of code bases where it's like the comment doesn't really apply anymore. Um, and yeah. you look at it and you're like, all right, I, this doesn't, you know, this just doesn't match what it's doing now, right? Which is not as great as some of the comments that you get. There's like, I don't know why this works, but it does, but don't touch it, right? Because if you, if you modify it at all, it'll never work again. And you're like, oh, surely this is pretty easy. And then you change it and realize, no, no, bad idea, put it back. Yeah, the next revision is like 300 more lines than the yes. than the one before it. <laughs> yep. That's too funny. What was the uh the next transition then? Was it bigger and better? Like was it a bigger platform? Was it expanding the scope of that role as the company grew? As I mentioned, right, the 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 salespeople were extremely good at what they did. And I remember getting to the point where, you know, back then I was what, 20 122 at the time and I wasn't married I wasn't seeing anybody so I worked a lot and that didn't seem to bother me at the time right but then I started to realize that no I am here a lot and I'm starting to get extremely stressed because I have a lot of deadlines with a lot of different projects all at the same time and even back then I was looking at we're managing this wrong right but they weren't in a position to hire more uh, folks to come on and I started looking around. It's like, I, I need to get someplace where it's more than just my manager and I. Like, so earlier, John, you were making the comment about people being scared to ask questions, right? They may look stupid or, or they may look like they're not um, good enough to be where they're at. 
but I, I think I realized something or I came to a conclusion and then later I realized it's I wanted to be around a lot more people that were way smarter than I right so that I could learn and some of that just boiled back down to working with my manager who was really smart he was he had a lot of really good business sense but it was just him and I right so I, I really wanted to expand on that and so I started thinking you know I'm there's just too many projects, right? We're getting overloaded all the time. It's super stressful and I want to learn more, right? And so there wasn't a whole lot of time to learn when it was just like, get it done, get it done, get it done. And so I started uh, interviewing for other uh, consulting companies and that meant basically moving out of the Lexington area. And I ended up getting a, a job with a company called GA Sullivan out of Cincinnati. And uh, the main office at GA was in St. Louis, and they had a handful of offices around the U.S. at the time. And that turned out to be one of the best moves I ever made. I went and worked at GA and worked with some of the best people that I have ever worked with and that I still talk to today, even though we don't, I mean, that's been over 20 years ago, <laughs> and I still talk to one of them uh, almost every day. That was more VB, right, For, uh, more VB6, more SQL Server, ASP, back when it was just ASP, Microsoft uh, Active Service Pages, before there was before there was .NET. And then I got onto a project that was .NET, right when .NET was coming out, right? So we were working with a interim build of Visual Studio .NET. So it was between beta one and beta two. And we lucked out and got onto a project where Microsoft Consulting Services or MCS at the time, they owned the ticket on the job, but they had us coming in as a partner to help. And uh, another consulting agency also came in to help a little bit. It was, I didn't know this at the time, but I think it turned out to be one of the largest .NET projects being done outside of Redmond at the time, right? Because this was brand new. And we were porting uh, what essentially was a, a CRM uh, or a contact management system from an app that was written in complete ASP over into .NET, right? And so it was all brand new. Like what in the world is a web form and why do I care, right? Plus it was everybody learning the differences between C-sharp because C-sharp was new. Uh, we actually had half the code base in C-sharp and half the code base in VB.NET. And that was, at, you know, weighing back and forth of what would work, what wouldn't work, how, to, and I think it boiled down to the front end was all web forms. Uh, there was no MVC at the time. That wasn't a thing at the time. And I think all of that was in VB.NET. The middle tier, so all our business logic was written in C Sharp. That project, uh, again, <laughs> I worked a ton. That project was one of those, we, we have to get this done by a particular conference date because this is the big conference for the customer where they're going to show off their, their platform and they want it to work. And so there was a lot of discussion of scope. Agile was, while it was a thing, it wasn't a thing on this project, um, but it kind of turned into that. <laughs> there was a lot of waterfall up front, and then we ended up being having to go and pull all the product, uh, what we would now call product owners, back into the conversation because early on they just wrote specs and there you go. And there was a lot of just empty, empty requirements or requirements that were not quite right and you had to go ask questions and they were like well we're on to the next project and we we literally mcs basically had to come in and say no no you you have to come back and we have to do this differently and so that was a, that was a good learning experience we were doing 
Agile-like things that we would have names for, you know, three or four years later. Um, and it's not like we were pioneering them. Right? Agile was out around then. It's just nobody in our area really had gotten there, if that makes sense. No plan survives contact with the enemy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and you probably didn't even call it waterfall development at the time, right? No, you called it, you know, software development, right? right. This <laughs> is how we do things. Yeah. That is a couple things that just popped into my mind as you're talking. I was like, I don't think that I actually knew that ASP stood for active server pages. <laughs> I think <laughs> it, like in my entire career, I never wondered what it, what it stood for. Also the, uh, I don't know, just like an interactive software package without the model view controller like pattern. Mm -hmm. I never thought about that. Like, you know, what was done before that is like, you know, somebody had to come up with that paradigm. It had to become a paradigm, Yep. you know? You mean you never used but, VI to make programs, John? That's that's the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that, I, I definitely have done that. But, you know, just that, that concept, the, the MVC concept, I don't, it's, now it's so embedded, right? I think that everything... I almost like decompose things into that, you know, even if, if that's not necessarily how I'm, you know, I'm, you know, it's being implemented, mm -hmm. you know, I still kind of think about things in that way. Fascinating. It's so interesting how the development environments we have available shape the way we think about how we want to approach our work. I mean, I know that it should, but it's interesting to hear the contrast of the a little before, a little after, and... And how that affected the planning and, and the changes. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I have to say, I think it's pretty cool that you got to work with Microsoft proper and do consulting for them. Because I imagine you probably learned a lot picking people's brains because they probably gave you some kind of backline support, right? Uh, yes and no, right? They, they were awesome to work with. I got to work with some folks that were just really outstanding. And it was a mix of... Again, some folks from our uh, consulting agency at GA Sullivan, and then some from another. And I was—I ended up being a lead. Two other guys from GA Sullivan ended up being leads, along with a couple of folks from Microsoft. It was interesting because I was working with some folks at Microsoft that had definitely been in consulting for quite a while, right? In MCS, I learned a lot from how they interacted with the customer and watching them. As far as the, the back-end support, we would end up, this doesn't work, right? Or how do we get this to work? And like I said, it was between two beta builds of Visual Studio. So we had a special build of VisualStudio.net. If we had any problems with it, you couldn't ask anybody. Like you couldn't go out to, you know, Stack Overflow wasn't there. But you couldn't go out to the Internet looking for how to fix this. And so we would send questions back that, thinking back now, went to the product team right, that we're actively working on it, and then we would get those answers back. And, of course, to us, it would just look like we turned around and asked Stacy, hey, how do you, what's going on with this? You know, this is a problem. Can we get it fixed? Uh, and then he would go and try to, you know, research to figure out what it was or contact somebody to try to remove that as a blocker. Was it the – you mentioned that you really enjoyed working with the people, and that's something that resonated with me because it's, it's always something that I look for is working with really smart people. Yep. Right. And then I also want them to be smart in a way that's different from the way that I'm smart. <laughs> right? I don't I don't want 
to sit in a room with a bunch of people that all think exactly the way I think because that yep. uh, becomes this like echo chamber. So um, were there other things that you liked about that job? Um, was it, you know, size and scale? Was it the types of projects? Like, what was it about it that, you know, I don't know, variety? Like, there's a couple different things that, you know, jump out at me as possible things. The, the people were a very big part of it. Uh, the fan, and I, I really do consider them like uh, the family, right? You hear these companies that say, well, we're like a family here. And there, it, it really felt that way. Uh, a lot of people, uh, to your point, we had folks that had way different backgrounds. We had a, uh, an actual architect, not software architect, but an actual architect, right? Um, um, I guess he was technically a mechanical engineer who had a bunch of architecture background. Like he designed manufacturing plants at one point and then just decided, you know what, I'm gonna code. And so he was great to learn from. Uh, I had folks that were, I guess, instructors, right? So they taught classes on SQL Server or whatnot and they had become consultants. And so I had a different perspective from them. We had folks that had a, a more IT ba uh, background, so a lot more in the networking and that kind of thing. And they were also consultants, funny enough, just on software. Like we were all wrapped around software. And GA Sullivan was, a, was definitely a Microsoft shop, right? We, don't, we pretty much only did Microsoft. We had a few folks that knew Java, uh, but for the most part, our, our work was uh, mostly with either with MCS in at a client or we got there because MCS said, here's, here's a partner that can help you out. Thinking back to other things that kept me at GA for as long as it was uh, beyond just the, the tight net, tight knitness, I guess, of that group is, you know, so the projects were kind of interesting. Like I said, I got to learn .NET right at the beginning and that definitely helped down the line, right? My understanding of how things worked um, in, that, in that environment, in that framework but also it was a pretty small company. I mean, there was maybe, I think at its biggest, maybe three or 400 people. And that's, you know, across multiple offices and multiple cities. Uh, we technically were global in that we had some sort of small space in, I can't remember which country it was, but it was a small country and uh, over in Europe. And they didn't, <laughs> I mean, we had like, 10 people there or something like that, right? But we were, at that point, a global company. But it was still pretty small and it felt that way. Uh, and it was a regional. So I never really had to travel too far away from home, which actually ended up causing why I ended up leaving that group, right? GA Sullivan got acquired by Avanade, which is a big consulting firm that's a, a joint venture between Accenture and Microsoft, right? And Avanade bought GA, and I rolled off, I was still at one client for three or four months, I think, after that acquisition. And then I rolled off that, <laughs> that client and they said, well, we don't really have anything for you uh, right away. So you're going to be on the bench for a little bit. Here's some things to study. I was like, great. And then like the next day I got a phone call and they're like, oh no, we have a new client for you. They're in Cleveland. Uh, we need you there on Monday. Uh, it's like okay, <laughs> and this was Friday, right? And at it, least it wasn't Saturday, I guess. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I guess Avanade at that point, um, and a lot of really large consulting companies, you know, that you could be anywhere, right? And there's a different flavor for each type of consulting um, company that you get into. And of course, I was acquired, right? So I would have probably never gone and interviewed there. 
Uh, not that there was a problem with that company or anything like that. It's just it's not the type of company I would have interviewed for because they have their folks travel on a re real regular basis. I looked at that, and, and at the time, I also need to point out, I've been married like four months at that time. right? So now you're talking indefinite, drive to Cleveland, which I live in northern Kentucky. Uh, so that's a you know five, six-hour drive, and it would be like drive up there on a Monday, need to be there as early as possible. So I was leaving my house at like 3 or 4 a.m., meeting some other uh, consultants that used to also be G.A. Sullivan, and we would carpool from just north of Cincinnati up to Cleveland. And then we were allowed to come home early. So we worked four days up in Cleveland. And part of that deal was get there as early as you possibly could on Monday and then stay until, you know, five or later on Thursday. Uh, and then you could work from home on Friday or do other things that you needed to get done, uh, you know, just paperwork and that kind of stuff on Friday. But it always turned into, you know, additional work that needed to get done on Friday for the customer. And that's fine, too, right, because that's part of it. But the travel really started to get to me because it was indefinite. Um, and it was like, okay. Uh, and, it, and when you got up there, when they say indefinite, that just means the size of the project, however long it takes to finish the project. And so when you get up there and you look at the size of the project and you go, oh, okay, yeah, we could be here for a long time. <laughs> And that's when I started looking for another position outside of outside of Avanade. Did that make you want to get out of consulting in general because you felt like most would require a fair bit of travel? Um, to a, to a degree, yeah. I mean, I was like, and that, in my next job actually was working for Expedex, which is a division of International Paper, and that was definitely, you know, you are now working for what's effectively a manufacturing company. Uh, that has Expedex is an arm in logistics, right? They they uh, move things around and and sell things. I would I would I felt like I was going to go work for a company, right? Uh, not a consulting company, but I was going to be a full time employee at a company, and I wanted to try that out. And, but to your point, yeah, it was like I I know I won't have to travel. I will drive to the office every day, and that's it. It'll be the same office. So you learned something, I guess, about the type of company that you wanted to work for. But it sounds like you already knew it. Um, like I probably wouldn't, when you said I probably wouldn't have interviewed there, it's probably because of the travel. But then when you experienced the travel, you said, oh, this definitely is not for me. Yeah, driving to Cleveland or driving six hours anywhere like twice a week, I would say is not a sustainable, sustainable thing. I was going to say like, you, I mean, you got to fly, but then even like door to door, like flying, you know, yep. can be five to six hours. You plan to be the person who does the carpooling and you pocket the mileage. That's the only way to do it. <laughs> that's that's what I was thinking the whole time. <laughs> well, I'm sure they got quite a bit, but I, I was completely happy to drive like the 45 minutes north, you know, north, go north of the river, park my car, and then sleep the rest of the way <laughs> as oh, they drove man. in. <laughs> yeah, can't blame you for that. No, they, I think the, the key there is to get the mileage on an airline, right? Yeah. And like rack up the, uh, the loyalty rewards and then, you know, then you can actually like go on vacation, you know, subsidized vacation essentially, like with your family. And that's the only way to, to really make it work. There are people that that lifestyle is exactly what they're looking for. Um, you know, the constant travel, um, I love to travel. I traveling for work is interesting, 
because a lot of a lot of people will think, well, I'm going to travel for work, so when I go, I'll be able to go out at night and do whatever, and I'll see all sorts of you know great things and, and around the city. And I can tell you that most of the nights that we were up in Cleveland, we were leaving at 7:30, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, right? Uh, trying to get in the hours to get the work done, but also because it's like, well, if I get the work in now, then Friday is a little bit more open, right? Right. And that was interesting because we would come out of come out of the customer at 8:30 at night downtown Cleveland. It's like there is nothing open, right? And and yep. we need to eat. And so there was like a Thai place, a really really expensive restaurant, and Subway, and that was it. Unless there was a ball game, right? If there was a basketball game going on, then a lot of the restaurants down there were open, and you could get something uh, pretty decent to eat. Other than that, your choices were extremely limited. You know, I had a new family, right? I had just gotten married. So the idea of staying over the weekend um, and paying on my own dime for the hotel over the weekend to then just go out and hang out in, in Cleveland, and that, that, wasn't, that wasn't for me, right? But there are people I know that they so love travel that they will organize something uh, or they'll work for a company that does that kind of, you know, you're going to go on site for extended periods of time, et cetera. And they'll work in, oh, okay, so I'm going to be in San Diego. I'll work during the week. During the weekend, I've got this planned or this planned, and then I'll take a few days off of work, and then I'll go here nearby and, and, and visit that. And I never got into that rhythm. I was always, my thought pattern was almost always around, if I'm going to take vacation, it's going to be somewhere completely different than where I, in, my, in my mind is now work, right? Um, and maybe that's a, that's a fault of mine of not being able to separate those, but... It's probably a good thing. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I've never run a consulting organization, so I guess I don't have experience with the uh, the ins and outs of paying for people to be there over the weekend, too. You know, but it's it feels to me like if you're over a hundred miles away from you know where you live, then people should have the option of staying, like, and not have to pay for it. <laughs> well, some of that comes back to. Uh, you know, is is the customer willing to pay for that, or how how do they, you know, how do they pass that on or not pass that on, right? Because right. it becomes mm -hmm. a decision on is that going to cut into the margin, right? On the job, yeah. On the job, and and to be honest, at you know, I I at the time definitely wanted to go home every weekend, mm -hmm. and a lot of people at GA at uh, GA Sullivan at the time were brand new families, right, or or fairly young families, so we didn't have too many, you know. 21-year-olds that were ready to just go travel the world. It was like, no, I, I really would rather be home, right? <laughs> because it was a, a company that got acquired. Yeah. Right? It was a yeah. company with one uh, travel culture yep. that got acquired by a company with a different travel culture. Yeah. Yep. Totally understandable. I wonder, uh, you know, that's got to be factored into during acquisition talks. It, it you know, it makes me actually want to uh, talk to somebody who is an M&A for something like that, you know, to, to, to ask questions like that. Like when you have different, you know, company cultures on things like that or, you know, how you treat your employees and, um, you know, the, what's required of the employees. And it's like, you know, vastly different. Like, yep. do you go, oh, like, I know that we're going to get 60% attrition and I don't care or... <laughs> you know what, what what is the idea there what's the theory of the acquisition because if it's a consulting company like oftentimes like it's the people that you're acquiring right it's the mm -hmm. the knowledge base it's the 
um, you know, the, the depth of knowledge of the people. And if they all start to leave because it's too different from what they signed up for, then what's the point of the acquisition? It could be a mix because they could also be going after the customer base. What customers are being served by that consultancy, right? And, and yep. they are, are they in markets that you're not in, right? And in some of that, I think, was the case for GA Sullivan and Avanade, right? We had customers that were in markets that they, they just didn't have. Uh, and so they bought into the market. And because they could get people and say, all right, well, you're traveling here now, right? They were buying the people. But at the same time, I think the attrition, I mean, I wasn't in the minds of the people that were there, obviously. But, you know, at that point, it's like, if I can get people to replace them, then I've got the locations, right? And I've got the customers at that point. Right. So I've been in three different acquisitions now. And not a single one of them has gone well for me. <laughs> <laughs> not that they were horrible companies or anything along those lines. It's just for my particular situation, they have not worked out. Um, and one of them, I was kind of, I don't want to say behind the scenes because we were the company being acquired, but I was at a, in a role of the company where I was being asked to present data or, you know, answer questions, right? So it was, you know, I was aware that the acquisition was, you know, ongoing and that there were talks and I was answering questions. Uh, so I got asked some of these questions that you're talking about, um, but mostly on the, on the tech side and how things worked and, and that kind of thing. But out of the three acquisitions, two of them I stayed long enough to be considered like an employee of the new company for a, a time. Um, and one of them, I just realized up front, I'm like, nope, that's not going to work. <laughs> uh, and so I actively um, left before the acquisition occurred. All on friendly terms, but it was very clear. It's like, okay, that's not the culture I want to get into. Looking at the, the two companies that I stayed, again, it's not like they were horrible companies. It's just you realize very quickly, okay, this, this is not the culture I want. And I, to your point, two different companies coming together, they absolutely have different cultures, no matter how much they talk about, oh, that, you know, that sounds just like us. There's something that's different. Um, and when that occurs and you get the merger, some of that stuff just doesn't come up until you've been in it a while. Again, back to just because the job description says something doesn't mean that's the way it is, right? And you hear oh, yeah. all sorts of things of like, we have great culture. I've recently gave a presentation or re-gave a presentation that I did a long time ago, and I, I go into the talk, of, uh, into the topic of culture and what is culture. And it's not, oh, we have a foosball table and we have happy hours and, you know, uh, standing desks. All those are flavors of a portion of their culture, but it is that's not. That's equipment. Too, yeah, that's equipment, right? Uh, one of the people that I gave the presentation and then someone said, that's a great way to put it from the standpoint of, yes, you have happy hour, or you have this, or you have that. If you didn't have those things, would you still work there, right? Because now you're starting to get down into what is the actual culture? What do they value about the people that work there? And do they value the people for, because of what they can do, or do they value the people for who they are? And that's, that's one of those things that you can't determine unless you're actually in there working, right? Or you're really lucky and you know somebody that is in there and can answer that question for you truthfully. Or they yeah. trumpet it proudly sometimes. Sorry? Sometimes they'll proudly trumpet it, you know? Yeah. Listen, we are so hyper-focused on this yep. that we will burn everything else to the ground, including sometimes our employees. Yep. 
I mean, probably the, nobody puts it that way, but <laughs> sometimes you can read between the lines. Yep. So hard, the acquisition, when you know it's coming, you, you read about the announcement, regardless of whatever side you're on. I've, I've not really been through that many. I was usually on this side of the company who was acquiring another, like when I worked for a manufacturing company. So I know exactly what you're talking about. You talk to people about what's the IT infrastructure like and how can these systems integrate? Everybody wants to know that. You, you may get it five minutes before the deal signed or something like that, but it d depends on where it is. But there's always this, in my mind, there's probably always this fear of those getting acquired. Like, are they going to come in and just cut us all or what do they want to do with us? Is it the same as what they're saying? You know, I, it's hard. It's just a, a lot of uncertainty that people don't like. And I would imagine it's very difficult to focus on what you actually can control. Yes, absolutely. It is, it is stressful. I want to give a special shout out to anybody out there who's listening that works in law enforcement. Mike really gives us some insight into what types of difficult decisions have to be made when you're a police officer, as he was at a very young age. I think it's great that he decided quickly that it wasn't going to be for him. And if you listen carefully, it's very obvious that Mike understands being in that type of environment Seeing what he saw every day as a police officer creates some baggage that you take with you away from that experience into other experiences. But I think he's done a pretty good job of not letting that bias him too heavily as he's progressed in his career. He picked up a lot of good skills like reading people and asking the hard questions that I think served him really well as he moved on into these consulting jobs. Could you see the dots connecting after hearing that Mike w had early exposure to programming and then started some work at Eastern Kentucky University after finding out law enforcement wasn't the right way to go? It was interesting that he went into consulting. He got his foot in the door at a small company, and one of the things Mike said was it was just him and his manager. He was able to learn quite a bit, but there was more work than they can do, and there wasn't often time to learn new things. I would say those are two indicators that you might need to make a change or your job satisfaction isn't what you wish it was. And really, those are mostly the reasons that Mike chose to move to G.A. Sullivan. I thought it was super cool that he kind of got in on some groundbreaking work with Microsoft. I mean, Beta Builds a Visual Studio. It reminds me of our interview with Manny Sadu and how he talked about catching a wave of a technology trend back in episode 80. Go back and listen to that one if you haven't. But also, the work was very interesting. It's not that it wasn't interesting before, but he got to work directly with Microsoft. He got to collaborate with people who were extremely well-versed in consulting from another firm as well. And that collaboration, learning from other people, that helps you mature as a technology professional or professional in a different area, for that matter. And after the company got acquired... Mike's travel burden went up significantly. 
he spoke to us about having to travel five to six hours one way to the place that he had to work for most of the week. And if he worked really hard for four days, he could come home and spend Friday doing catch-up and administrative work. He also shares with us that the life of the road warrior, whether it's on planes or in cars, on the subway, whatever it is, is not glamorous. And it's not for everybody. Some people really like it, as you've heard. And I'm sure there are some listeners out there who would really like to do that or be given that opportunity to travel. I'd also be really curious to hear from anybody who has struggled to get back in the travel groove after the pandemic. We didn't talk about that in the episode, but for some people, if they haven't traveled in a while, once they do go start to travel again, it's extremely draining. Social fatigue is definitely a thing. Travel fatigue is a thing. I really like the point Mike made about the culture of a company and that it was about valuing the people who work there for who they are, not necessarily what they can do. So can you guess what happens with Mike next week? We're actually going to talk to him about some time off that he took and some of the things he did during that time off to reset and figure out what was next. But I won't spoil it. Just a reminder, we want people to smash that subscribe button and don't forget to ring the bell. Be sure to give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore, flying solo for now. For my buddy John White, at B. Journeyman, signing off. 